Thank you, Dan. I could uh, listen to that reading all day. In fact, Dan, if you want to come back up, I have my notes for you. I'm just going to let you do the sermon with that voice. It's awesome. Thank you very much for doing that. Thank you for the, the men who have led us in worship this morning and just so impressed with the skill that all you guys bring and and uh, the time to just kind of lift our voices, kind of be lost in the moment, as Dan said, and to really... Um, just bring the voice, uh, bring the, the name of the Lord to our forefront and to be focused on it. I'm, I'm cold still this morning. Anybody else? My brain still need, uh, well, let's just huddle together, shall we? Let's make it weird. Let's kind of, it's all just, I'll bring the pulpit down. You guys just come for, you know, I don't know. I just, February, man, just a few more days and we're through it. Not the cold, but the psychological got to survive February thing. So we're almost there. I don't know. I was thinking about some of the things that we say and how we want what like what's the phrase that we want to be um, remembered for, like the last things you say. How do you finish? We've said goodbye to some dear saints in the Lord, and I've been so proud and impressed to see how they've exited this earth to go to what we've been saying is the real world and how they finish on high notes of faith and just locked in on their savior and things and makes you think like, how am I how am I going to? go out? How am I going to, you know, if we could orchestrate these things, what would they be? And those things are coming to mind because we're in Paul's last words to the church in Ephesus as he's finishing out this letter. And um, so I, I was like, well, what are some of the kind of some of the things that others have said on their way out that are, are memorable, you know, and try to come up with a list for you here. So I got a few examples better than one that I saw that was like, and it was a civil war captain. And I forget which side he was on or anything, but uh, in this particular moment, he was on the losing side because he was up on his horse being all brave and being the leader. And they're like, you sure you're in a good position? They're firing at us. And and he said, he goes, they couldn't hit an elephant from this dip. And he was done. <laughs> the bullet had finished his sentence for him. They couldn't hit an elephant and he was gone. So I kind of feel like that's the way... I'm going to be, I'm going to say something at the end of my life that's going to be like, really, that's how you wanted to finish it? Like, honey, I'm going out for milk. His famous last words, that's how he wrapped it all up. Buddy Rich, who is a famous drummer from way back in the day, who actually, where's Justin? I want to embarrass him, but I, I won't, I can't see him, so I won't. Justin was the guy playing the cajon here, our, our drummer and everything. I saw a video of you, Justin, years ago that your dad proudly shared with me that you were covering a Buddy Rich piece precisely to, I mean, it's incredible. It was just, Buddy Rich was the man, just a great drummer. Anyway, uh, when going into surgery, his nurse had asked him, is there anything that you can't take? You know, she's thinking medicine and, well, he's going into surgery. He says, yeah country music. Yeah, I'm with him. If, if he hadn't come out, right? I mean, like that's the way you want to be remembered. Still going back in the past, uh, Bob Newhart. I don't know how long ago this was because I, I, I didn't even know. Is he gone officially? Is Bob Newhart? Anyway, his wife had asked him as she was making plans, you know, just making plans for, you know, end of life stuff and everything. And she said, where do you want to be buried? He goes, I don't know. Surprise me. I love that. It's just an awareness, you know, like you're ready for the moment kind of thing. Well, Paul is concluding this letter that has brought us on a journey, you know, about 30 or so messages in. 
uh, has brought us on a journey and he's going to wrap it up with some final, it just says it, the heading in my Bible, maybe yours too, just final greetings. And we have a tendency to just kind of read those quickly. It's a wrap up. He's saying some sweet things at the end. Hey, peace, blessings be on you. It's all good. I'm out. But if we look and just take some time on these uh, few verses, I think we're going to get a perspective that Paul is wrapping up everything that he's taught us, and he's actually subtly demonstrating the things that he's holding us accountable to as well. So I'm hoping I'm not making too much out of it. I think that we're looking at this pretty accurately here, and we won't over-apply it. But I think it's important to see that these words are not just polite, sort of tacked on, how am I going to wrap this up? i got to say some nice things to some people. Instead, what he's helping us to understand, as he has been for six chapters now, is that the, uh, the essence of the gospel that he is preaching to us results in unity, that if we are doing gospel living the right way, it brings us together with one another. It brings, remember, the whole theme of this letter has been bringing the church into unity, not just closeness, not just we can tolerate one another, but we're locking arms together on mission, we're armoring up together, we're going to battle together, and we're attacking attacking the spiritual world and the forces of darkness together rather than in isolation going against the grain of even the culture that we live in now which is drawing us further and further away from each other so paul is saying this is a timeless truth that is supposed to result in unity if the spirit is in it and so if we are you know, just going down memory lane a little bit, and that's what most of what today will be. We'll be picking some of the key verses that we've studied along the way, and we'll be using some other supporting scripture from the rest of the scripture of the rest of the Bible to 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 underscore Paul's points here. But Paul wants us to be fixated on peace and love, faith and grace. Now, we can easily see how that would sound like just a nice, pleasant parting. It's how a lot of us sign off on our emails or we might sign off letters. Hey, grace or peace or love, something like that. So if, if, if we just overlook it and skim past it, we'd think that's exactly what he's doing. But he's underscoring. He's saying these are the things that we've said over and over and over again. We've not only demonstrated that these things are in the possession of the follower of Christ, but they are to, they are expected to be the outpouring of a life lived in Christ. That have, not only have we received these things, but we are to do these things as well. And so there's a unity that we have that truly is hours and 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 just again by review we're going to take this piece by piece but if we understand that we are all united or related to one another from a negative standpoint because like Romans 3 says we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God so even before we've come to Christ we're related in the sense that we all have the same disease that there's a connection that we all have because we were born in sin as a result of that heritage from Adam and Eve. We've said it over and over again. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's inevitable that we would act out based on our nature. So we are all related initially before Christ in this sinful nature. But the hope is, and the message of the gospel is, we're also related as we come to Christ. Now we're related in grace and forgiveness and restoration. We are related in new life. 
You may remember a couple months ago, we used an illustration of two guys that were traveling to work in the same way, and we nicknamed one of them Mud Tires and the other one was Smart Car. Anybody remember this? So Mud Tires was the guy who's just like had the lifted up, jacked up four by four, big flags coming out the back, and he was just tearing up the road. He didn't want anybody to be in his way. He was burning, you know, a gallon a second. And then Smart Car was like, I'm going to go three miles under the speed limit, and I'm going to preserve the the planet and doing all these kinds of things. These guys were completely from two different, I was going to say walks of life, drives of life. And yet they were related in the sense that they both, for whatever reason, kept getting in trouble with traffic cops who were saying you're violating one way or the other. They kept finding themselves in court dealing with tickets and violations. The judge, seeing these guys have the same problem, they're just exercising it in two different ways, said the solution to that is that you surrender your license, you no longer drive your own vehicles because you can't stay out of trouble, and you take the ride that's being offered to you, my driver gets you there perfectly every time, never ran into any problems with the law, and so if you humble yourself and you'll take my sentencing, you will be brought to work in all the places you need to go safely, you'll never be in my presence again, you won't have to deal with any of this. And so we talked about this from a standpoint of that's how the Jew and the Gentile was related in the same church, even though culturally they had great divides. But in Christ, both being indebted to sin and being forgiven in Christ. Now, it didn't matter what background they came from, what they were trying to accomplish in life before meeting Christ. Now they're in the same ride and now they're united together. And this is what Paul is saying is that in truth, we are all related in Christ. Or we could say it this way. The truth of who we are in Christ should bring every person closer together. It sounds like a nice sentiment. It should be in a Bob Dylan song, that kind of thing. But if we think about this, that if we're really living out the gospel, it brings us closer. What's going on today? Apart from the gospel, we don't know how to do this. Apart from the gospel, we are not naturally drawn to each other. We naturally take advantage of one another. We are attracted to those that we can either use or take advantage of or that fit our lives in a comp- compatible kind of way. But the gospel gets us over ourselves and moves us towards the needs and the characteristics of the other person. So the truth of who we are in Christ should bring every person closer together. The church should be the expression of this more than anything else. So this is the truth of our unity. This is the possession that we have. But also we have a practice of unity that we jump back into the the, couple of the verses that Dan had read for us earlier. We go to verse 21. He said, so that you, uh, so this is Paul saying this now, and he's kind of dictating this up until this point, I believe. He was dictating this to a man he's about to mention. And it's almost like he was like, okay, give me the letter for a second. I want to sign off on a couple of things. I want to say a few things about you that I know I couldn't get you to write if I told you to write this down. He says in verse 21, so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. He's going to fill in the gaps. I've got a lot of things written. He's going to tell you, you know, some of the other things that I haven't included. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I think Paul is starting to lean into something here in practice that he's been talking to the church all about in terms of this unity and this fellowship and this dependence on one another. 
He brings up a man who is a native of that area. He's Asian in his origin. He's probably from Ephesus. It was a major city in that province. Most likely was one of Paul's converts. So in short period of time, Tychicus has found a place in Paul's heart. And he's saying, not only do I have a couple of friends, but I have, I have friends so trustworthy that I would take this letter and we've been reading it and just been amazed by it, right? And he trusts the content of this letter to be in this man's hands to make it to them and to deliver it with it with effect, but also to communicate the actual person of Paul. He says, I want him to fill in the gaps of the things that I haven't, haven't even uh, written down yet. So he knows, this guy knows me. And he's going to represent me really well. He wasn't just a, a secretary of Paul's. He was somebody who was a close companion. You may recall, if you were with us in our study of 2 Corinthians, in particular, chapter 11, Paul is kind of pushed up against the wall. And he's, and he's being uh, questioned as to whether or not he's a legit apostle, whether or not he really knows what he's talking about, what he's doing. So he's like, I don't want to do this, but I have to because my integrity is being called into question. And if my integrity is being called into question, then the impact of the truth may be held back. So he says in 2 Corinthians 11, he goes, okay, here's my resume. He goes, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, robbers, my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And the name that isn't mentioned in that paragraph who would have had to have been witness and partaking in all of this was this man Tychicus. I can almost imagine as Paul is wanting to list these things out, his friends over there, oh, and don't forget about the animals. Oh, remember that time when you went through that? And he's filling in all the gaps. And Paul's like, oh, that's right. We went through that, didn't we? To, to see that this man was so close to him, that there was a bond between them, that they shared these experiences. And you know how it is, right? You're closer to the people that have gone through the things with you than those that haven't. Sometimes those bonds and those things surprise us because we didn't even know we liked each other and then we survived this thing together. It's like, that's my, I'm bonded now. Paul, I think, is practicing what he's preaching. He's not just saying this as a, a theorist. He's, he's a practitioner. He's saying, I'm not just telling you things that you should do. He says, this is my life too. I'm, I'm not dying alone here. I'm not chained up by myself. I've got those that I can trust. I have those that I've, I've shared this life with and I trust immeasurably. These are the elements of a gospel partnership that Paul is encouraging us to find that we don't just go to church. You don't just go because Sunday morning somehow pumps you up or fills you up and so that you go off into a life of either isolation or no other gospel relationships that are sharpening you or raising you up in the fellowship of the saints. Paul is saying, I couldn't have survived this without him. I couldn't get these words to you without him. If you think about what are the elements of this partnership, how do we know if we have a gospel partnership like like Paul and Tychicus did? Think about what we're seeing here. We're seeing a shared mission. It was clear that Paul was called to spread the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the non-Jew. 
He was like, that's my calling. I'm going to go and I'm going to evangelize the Gentiles. The, the mission was clear, pretty straightforward and simple. Wasn't easy, but it was straightforward and simple. And so his partner, his trusted friend said, I can get behind that. I can support you along the way. I can make sure that whatever you need along the way happens. He was, he was entrusted. That's another part of all of this, that Paul had very little choice if he was going to keep the mission alive, if he was going to keep the churches encouraged. I mean, he's always getting locked up, always getting in trouble. So he needed somebody on the outside to go and be him in other places. And this isn't the only guy he had. He had others. But it was certainly one of his very important ones, entrusted with raising money as they were giving to the poor and going to the churches and saying, we need to raise the money for the poor and everything. He knew that this guy wasn't going to take advantage of a ministry opportunity and turn it into for selfish gain. Paul has called him a faithful minister. Otherwise translated, he had unshakable loyalty. Do you have somebody in your life that you have? I don't mean, can you trust? Because we always put that on the other person. Can I trust this person? And that's important. But are you willing to trust somebody else to that degree? There's a, there's an ownership that we have in establishing those friendships and those relationships too. How much of ourselves will we give into that and let go of the outcomes? And, and to lead into this third part, which is a vulnerability. Paul allowed himself to be seen at his worst with this man. I'm sure Paul wasn't on his physical A game, if you will, or being presentable as he's always imprisoned and and uh, struggling with all of these difficulties. That list that we just saw in 2 Corinthians. I mean, do you think that Paul was always having this halo or this glow about his head like we see depicted in the paintings? He was a real person caught in real moments and he was willing to be vulnerable, to be quote unquote unsaintly, if you will, in order to be exposed before him. Do you have people in your life that you can share the mission with? Do you have people in your life that you trust, that are trustworthy and you're willing to trust? Are you vulnerable with those people? You never know. You might get an honorable mention in some important write-up one day like this man did. Able to live through all the generations, and that's how he's honored. And Paul almost, in a sense, had to say, give me the pen. I know you're not going to say these things about yourself. If I said, say in there that Tychicus is a great guy, he'd have been like, mm-hmm, uh-huh, mm-hmm. And if Paul grabbed that letter, you didn't write that at all. He would have known that, because that's who he was. He was humble. He said, give me the pen. I'll say these things about you, the things that you won't say about yourself. And coincidentally, what I want to do this morning is share some of the segments of where we're going next with men that I have in my life that I would also say very similar things to. I'm not putting my my ministry on the level of Paul's here at all, but to demonstrate to you that I also have people that I trust implicitly. And, And unfortunately, I don't have the opportunity to bring all the ones up that I would categorize this way. But I'm going to ask the guys that I actually work with and that are on staff here at Faith to come and share some of the, these points and pray together over these things as Paul's wrapping up this letter as a demonstration of, again, the uh, kind of gar- gospel partnerships that we form in life. Growth in the gospel is the best thing that you and I can hope for other people. And this is where Paul's going to wrap up in these last two verses. Again, not just saying, so see you later, glad you're read, I'll catch up with you later. 
He's injecting them with, don't forget all the things that we've read. Don't forget all the opportunity of growth that you have. So we go to verses 23 and 24. Knowing that these are loaded, let's pay attention to some of the key words. He says, peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We're not surprised that Paul is talking about the fact that there is a peace that we can have from God and that he's wishing that. And I wish I know is a really weak word, but wanting that, hoping that on the followers of Jesus Christ, especially in the church of Ephesus and those that might receive the letter later. He's just talked about the armor of God and one of those things being the shoes of peace or lacing up the boots of peace. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about you have peace with God first and foremost. You're no longer warring in your soul, making him the most gracious, loving person that we could ever know, making him the enemy of our soul because we haven't surrendered to him. We haven't laid ourselves down before him. He says, no, instead, walk in peace. You don't have to fight with him anymore. He wants to forgive you. He, he wants to set up a, a table. The psalmist says a table in the, in, 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 before your enemies, a negotiation place, a place of peace, to, to, to sign a treaty, to make an accord. And we fight against God all the time. And it's really a one-sided fight in the sense that he doesn't, he's not movable. His holiness just is. It's us always trying to get our way and run from his love and his care. And he's like, who are you fighting with? I'm offering you a seat at the table. I want you to sign the peace treaty here. And you've got other things you want to do and you want to continue to be at odds with me. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we could stop and just imagine that the only reason why we have an invitation to sit at the table is because of what someone else has done on our behalf, that he would say, I'm going to let you come off the front lines of the, the army that opposes me because my son has paid for all of your offenses. He's paid for all of your uh, atrocities against me and my regime. And I'm going to let you sit at the table and out of my graciousness, I'm even going to give you an opportunity to sign a peace treaty. We have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to make this side point. If you're following along in your notes, I've called it a key point. It's a little bit clunky for me. I wasn't sure how to word this. But it's a little bit repetitive over the last few weeks. We are constantly at in battle with the spiritual world. We know this. We've talked about this. But too often, Christians put a human face on a spiritual battle and make the human face the enemy that we are fighting against rather than recognizing what's driving all of this. The people that we should be showing love to and, and, and looking for an invitation to the peace table. This is not passivity that we're talking about. There is a solution to the war and we should be drawing people to the table. He wants to sit with you too. But we're so quick to be offended. Well, we should be offended about things that go against the law of the Lord and, and the goodness of God. Yes, I agree with that. But so often our offense turns into those idiots, those morons, what's wrong with them? They're so short-sighted. There's a, yes, and the scripture says, and such were some of you. And we could say, and such were all of us. 
We didn't show up to the table to sign the treaty of our own accord, of our own goodness, of our own intelligence or brilliance. We were invited, and by God's grace, we actually pulled out the chair and sat down and said, what do you have? Our compassion grows when we see that people are needlessly opposing God. It's not the war he wants. He wants to show them peace. He wants to forgive them. And if you're struggling to have compassion towards those that you disagree with or those that you know are in direct opposition to the goodness and the, and the purity of God, which there is a whole world of them out there, right? But if you're struggling to demonstrate that kind of compassion, remind yourself that you too were once at war with God and that it was only by his grace that you came to the table and signed that treaty. And they are needlessly opposing a God who also wants to broker that peace with him. With them. So we have peace with God. It's an incredible gift. And we have the peace of God, which shows up in our conduct and how we go forward. It's a word that means wishing or wanting the well-being of somebody else, their wholeness, their rest. The Hebrews call it shalom. And all of that's wrapped up into that greeting, which is found in the presence in the person of Christ. Jesus himself promises this in John 14. He says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, my peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. So therefore we could say, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither, neither let them be afraid. You can have an inner peace and a stability. Doesn't matter how many bombs are flying over your head, how many bullets are flying past your ears. You're fighting this battle in the spiritual world. You can still have peace. Again, what the psalmist talked about, a table in the presence of my enemies. I could sit and have a meal while the war's going on around me. You can have that peace in the person of Christ. And so this is the peace that Paul is praying for, for his church. This is the peace that he's been instructing us through, uh, out the, uh, the entire letter. So I'm going to ask somebody to come and pray over these things for us, that we would be a church of peace, that we'd be a people of peace. And in particular, I'm asking Pastor Tom to come to, to pray because he is an individual who does seek that kind of peace and looks for that best in people and wants the best for them. I'm going to ask Pastor Tom to come and pray for us here for just a few minutes. Okay, let's pray together. Lord, peace with you, God. No longer your enemies, no longer having to fear the storm of your wrath because your anger has been turned away by the sacrifice of Jesus. God, thank you that all that's left is, is peace. Shalom. That peace that passes all understanding, that peace that guards our hearts, guards our minds as we await stepping into your presence one day in heaven. God, thank you for that peace that we have, that peace that that you have made with us. God, thank you that you've shown us what it is to forgive and to find peace with each other. God, thank you that that you've given us those hard things to walk through so that we would have an opportunity to offer forgiveness and to accept it as well. Lord, help us to uh, put away all bitterness and anger and slander, wrath and malice. God, help us to be kind and loving towards one another and forgiving. 
just as you in Christ have forgiven us. God, we know that's easier said than done, Lord. So search our hearts, Lord, in this very moment. God, reveal to us any grudge, any any root of bitterness, anything offensive to you, and pull it up before it, it springs up and disturbs the peace that you are building here in this church. God, help us all to not fall short of the peace that is offered to us. So God, protect us from ourselves, um, because Lord, we are still and will always be a people who need saving. God, we ask that you would move in our hearts today. God, help us to take a step forward in offering and, and seeking restoration among brothers and sisters wherever it is needed, Lord, so that you can continue to do an incredible work in us. God, may that peace that we have with you and with each other, God, may that continue to transform us. And as we, as we grow in, in gratitude and in joy, God, may we be able to offer that same peace to others who do not know you, who do not have shalom, who do not have peace. God, you died to make peace with us. So it would be a shame for us, your people, to be silent about it. God, and as I believe, as we, as we proclaim peace to your enemies, that is what puts a smile on your face, Lord. So help us to do just that. God, use us as messengers to proclaim shalom in a world that needs it desperately. Lord, I ask you to do all this and more through your power, which is mightily at work in us. God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Next on Paul's list, a word he's used more than perhaps any of the other key words in this uh, benediction is uh, the word love. And every time that Paul uses it, or most of the time, seems to be emphasizing the love that you and I might share together, this brother and sister love of unity. Not just the love that we've received, but what we do with the love that we have received. That it is a love that has been given to us to go out to others. Because just like peace, it's a gift from God. No manufactured um, efforts through song or poetry or just wishing harder produces the kind of love that sustains God's glory and the unity of the church. Paul had said in Romans 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the presence of the Holy Spirit in each of us produces this kind of love. A love that is spent on others, that seeks others' interests more than our own. A love that gives of ourselves inconveniently for the benefit of somebody else. Paul even rewards the church with his compliments at the very beginning of the letter. Let's go way back to the beginning of Ephesians 1. Beginning in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Your love is toward all Remember how important that word all is when he's talking about a people most tempted to be divided because of cultural differences. Love so obvious 
that it even becomes the church's characteristics. We know Jesus' famous words in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That we would be identified as, oh, those people, those are the people that love each other really, really well. Obviously, these things are spiritual gifts. These are things that we can't just produce on our own and they require prayer. I'm going to ask my brother Jeremy Jones to come and pray for love to be shed abroad in the hearts of the people and in the church. And Jeremy represents this love very well. And uh, I'm just thankful for the Lord, to the Lord for putting him in my life. Jeremy, where are you hiding? All right. Good morning. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for for your love, for the love that, that you've shown for your children that would lead you to want to be restored to them, to us, Lord, in such a way that, that you would send your son down, that you would send him down to be on the earth walking among us, to suffer, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, and ultimately to be hung on a cross and take the curse and take the weight of all of the sins that we carry, Lord, that kept us apart from you, that he would go to that cross, that he would die for us, that he would show us a love that we can't even fathom, Lord. Lord, I thank you for allowing it to be written in your word when the disciples ask Jesus, what is the greatest of commandments? And, and he tells them, Lord, and you allow us to understand that through your mercy, through your grace for us, that it's to love you, it's to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, Lord. And and I just pray, and I I, I pray that that would be evident in your children, in your people, in all that we do, all that we say, in our actions, Lord, throughout all the temptations that have come across us throughout the day in our lives, that we would continue to love you above all else, above all the things that can distract us from you, Lord. But a close second, Jesus tells them, is to love your neighbor as you love yourselves. And Lord, sometimes that's easy uh, when it's the neighbor that offers you the cup of sugar or the stick of butter or the person sitting in the seat next to us this morning, Lord. But I pray that you would help us to love the neighbor that ridicules us as Jesus was or the neighbor that mocks us or the, the neighbor that's not as deserving, Lord, in our eyes because we weren't deserving in yours but you loved us anyway. I pray, Lord, that that we would love them even just a fraction of the way you love us, Lord, that, that we would point them towards you through our love, through our actions, through our words towards them, that we would go into those areas of our city or, or in our neighbor's homes, or, Lord, maybe the person sitting next to us, that we would show them the love that you have and that we would be able to 
we would be able to allow them to soften their hearts and open their minds and, and not fight against you, as Pastor Brent said earlier, Lord. And I just pray that in this process that relationships would be restored, hearts would be healed, and you would be glorified. And I just pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Paul, several times in his letters, challenged us about our faith and presented to us as a gift of the Lord, a saving faith, a once-for-all faith, a faith that is our intellectual belief, what we know to be true, but our willingness to put it into practice. I was shown a video last week because Gus wanted to brag about the fact that he jumps out of planes, as we always say, perfectly good airplanes and falls to the ground with a parachute. Him and John Doobie were on a recent trip and took a jump and they document it and film it and everything. And I remember seeing like, man, the guy's so chill. Like Gus is just, Hey, this ought to be fun. Let's do it. And thumbs upping the camera the whole time. That's, that's trust. That's resting in what you know to be true. The truth is the stats say for the most part, we should expect we're going to get to the ground safely. That's what happens for people every day, all the time that do this. But there's a resting in it that we don't always do as we exercise our quote-unquote faith. If it were me in that video, it would have been a completely different scenario. I, I know the stats, and I would have still probably made it to the ground based on the truth of what's going on. But my resting in that process wouldn't have been something you'd want to see on, on screen unless funniest home videos or something like that. There's a difference between what we do with what we say we believe and how we actually live based on that knowledge. So Paul is calling us to a faith that walks practically in the knowledge of what we have. He emphasizes again and going back into chapter one, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So knowledge is clearly a part of our faith. But then in chapter four, he says to us there, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk, or we said, conduct yourselves, practice this life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The faith is a matter of being resolute by living by your convictions. And so I've asked Pastor Gary to come and pray this for us as a church because I believe he embodies this perhaps better than most that I know in this conviction of heart and resoluteness. So Pastor Gary, would you please come and pray these things for us? Please join me as we pray together. Dear God, Lord, we we come together as a church body collectively to thank you for all you've done for us, God, all the blessings you've given us. And there are so many more that we don't recognize or even are aware of. Lord, you are such a gracious God and a loving God, and we praise you for loving and saving us. Lord, you tell us in Scripture that... Without faith, it is impossible to please you. So God, we pray that our faith in you grows every day and that we see you at work in our lives and in those around us as well, God. 
Lord, we pray that our faith in you overflows into our family life, that it's evident to our spouse as they see and feel the love of Christ through our actions and words. And God, that our children see our faith as a genuine faith. It's not just a facade that we put on Sunday morning as we come here to service, God. But Lord, it is a vibrant faith that's on fire for you as we live and share throughout the week. Lord, help us to love each other in our church family here as we encourage each other to grow closer to you and put on that armor of God that we've been learning so much about. And God, help us to use that shield of faith to deflect the the fiery arrows, Lord, that Paul describes that Satan slings at us, God, as he lies and deceives us and he wants to tear us down. He hates each one of us and he wants to ruin our families and our faith in you. Lord, we live in a culture where it's very evident to see that tries to break down truth and discourage our faith in you. God, I pray that that never be the case. Help us to know truth firmly and walk accordingly. Help us to stand strong in our belief because we've seen you come through time and time again in our lives. Lord, give us a confident faith in who you are and what you've done for us. And give us a faith that even when we're shaken to the core, Lord, we still cling to your promises and trust you, no matter what the circumstance may be, through the good times and the bad times. Lord, we ask for a greater desire to be faithful to your call, with a boldness and a passionate faith as we continue in your mission. We pray our belief would constantly propel our action to be your obedient servants, Lord, who serve here in your church. And God, we pray that may we always be ready to proclaim your good news, that great commission that you have sent us out to share, and that we share that good news to everyone we come across and bring others to a saving faith in you. God, we pray all this in your great and mighty name. Amen. Last but not least on Paul's list is this grace that we couldn't earn, that we didn't deserve. In fact, that's exactly what grace is, is the opposite of what we deserve. It's a benefit to us. It's a favor as it's interpreted. And this is what Paul is praying for all of us to walk in, to experience it first and foremost, to come face to face with a grace that we couldn't have manufactured on our own. He even dials it down even deeper for us in chapter two, where he says, even the faith you needed to believe in this grace is a gift from God. He says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that none of us can brag about this. He says, that's the grace that I want you to encounter is the stuff, the, the type that just gets you so far to the end of yourself. You're like, man, even the good stuff I produce comes directly from him it puts us together on this mission of grace that we would have a continual lifestyle of applying that grace for us each and every day we talk about we need the gospel every day not because we need to be resaved, but we need to be reminded of all of the grace that we've been shown and it's still available to us in buckets. But also that would move us forward to continue to look for the opportunities. And we said in the past that this is the hard part. Lord, I want to show grace to somebody today. You're basically inviting trouble. 
I want to be offended. I want to be inconvenienced. I want to be angered. Why? So I can show someone grace. What a crazy prayer request. But that's what it means to live on mission of grace. And Paul uses a really cool word here. He says that we'd be locked in in Christ's incorruptible love. Because it's his gift, it's his love, and it's incorruptible. My love, your love, eh. But his? So that we don't have to show selective grace, as we just heard prayed, I think when Jeremy was praying, that we wouldn't just pick and choose those whom we extend grace to, but we'd say, Lord, make me available to show all people grace. Just as it's been shown to us in John 1, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace on top of grace over and over and over again in many varied ways. Our walk with God is best displayed, brace yourselves, in the liberality of the grace that we show. He said he's a liberal. I heard it from his mouth. How can I keep giving you grace? How can I keep showing you all that's been shown to me? I have no appreciation for all the grace that I've been shown. I don't know all that I've done. I don't know all the ways that I've offended God. But I know he's forgiven every single one of them. So I'm going to invite up my friend Steve Dameron, who's been a partner in the gospel with me for many years. And I know is a recipient of a lot of grace, wouldn't you say, Steve? (laughs) but also one who shows it. And he's shown it to me throughout our many years of, of doing this together and stuff. And so I just going to ask him to pray for us that we would also walk in that same grace. Pray with me. Lord, how lost would we be without your grace? While we were still in our sin, you sought us out to give us your favor. Thank you for your grace which I know I need daily. I pray your grace falls down on this church body, that we embrace it every day, and because of your grace, that every day we are able to show grace to our families, friends, co-workers, and leaders in our lives. May all the glory and honor be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. What is Paul saying in this letter and not just in this closing? As we wrap this up, we see that the follower of Christ possesses vast riches and he sums them up for us in peace, love, faith, and grace. And these riches are meant to be spent, not just hoarded. We have an unending supply if we believe the first half of this book. But riches are meant to be spent on and with others. They're best enjoyed when we share them. So we pray for faith. We pray for our church. We pray for its people. In all of our gospel partnerships, those that are in our city, those that are around the world, those that are in our past, those that will be in our future, we pray for all the things that we walk in to be saturated with this peace, love, faith, and grace. And we pray that all of us will walk equipped in the battle armor that has been provided for us. Let's not waste this opportunity to see God show himself as the valiant warrior that he is able to protect us in the fight that we're all in. 
And let's not miss the invitation to re- to receive these vast riches of his kingdom by his grace. If you're here and you're kind of going, I don't really know what it means that you're talking about you have all these riches. Are you just talking about you're all wealthy people and you all have super nice cars out in the driveway or something? It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the riches of God's righteousness, all that he's given us and equipped us for the real world. We're living in a real world with real lives, but we know that it matters more against the backdrop of eternity. And in that world, he's provided for us forgiveness and purity and a place with him for all of eternity. And if you're missing out on that, if you don't know that there's an invitation for you to come and sit at the peace table and to stop your war with the Heavenly Father, that's what we're here to introduce you to. We want you to know the saving love of Jesus Christ. And there isn't a magical incantation. There isn't 10 steps of religious exercise that you have to go through. This morning, you could simply just humble yourself and say, okay, I know I don't have that kind of peace. I know that my sin has kept me separate from a perfect and holy God. And and I'm talking to you now, Lord, as though you hear me because I'm believing in faith that you do. But I want that peace. I want to surrender to you. Save me. Direct me. Make me your child and help me follow you into battle. That's what it means to give your life to Christ. That's all that we've done to inherit all of these riches. So don't miss this invitation And don't wait for some special moment to hit you. The scripture says now is the appointed time. We don't delay these things. And church, let's grow together as we consistently aim towards these higher goals rather than the church of our making, rather than the things of our likeness and all the other petty things that we know are a part of everyday life. Let's not let those win the war for us. Let's keep our eyes on these higher goals and these higher riches that Christ has provided for us. And let's walk in them, showing each other all the grace that we've been shown by our Heavenly Father. Would you stand, please? Let's pray and let's prepare ourselves to lift our voices again. But I I just want to encourage you to revisit this letter from time to time and to spend some time in it. We, We spend as much time in it because of its importance for a reason. So go back and review it from time to time. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for all that you've taught us, all that you've shown us in this letter to the church in Ephesus. I'm so thankful, Lord, once again for Paul's faithful ministry and that you've radically, you radically renewed Paul, that he was a man of his own accomplishments, his own ambitions, thinking he was doing you favors by killing the very ones that followed you and loved you, only to have a complete turnaround and be so broken and humbled by that error to be this great leader of the church, Lord. And so I just thank you, God, for giving him to us as an example. And thank you, Lord, for giving uh, you, uh, giving him your words to be recorded for us, to be obeyed, to be appreciated, to be hidden in our own hearts. Continue to do a transforming work in all of us, Lord, particularly for those who have not come to you. I pray, Lord, that they would do that in the moment of this prayer, that they would be speaking to you now and receiving you into their life to commit to following you and to accept the forgiveness that you've made available to them. I pray that you would usher in new children into your kingdom today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.